KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. James Bond doesn't fart. That's right. Gary Oldman is back on Cinema Junkie to talk about flatulence, and that's cause for celebration. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Apple TV Plus recently launched season three of Slow Horses, starring Gary Oldman as the disheveled, flatulent, and often drunk Jackson Lamb. It's also midway through its Monarch Legacy of Monsters show that expands Legendary's Monsterverse. I had the opportunity to speak with some of the creative folks behind both shows. First, I'll be speaking to Oldman and co-star Jack Loudon about where their characters are in the latest season of Mick Herron's Espionage Tale. Then I'll talk with the people behind the camera who are bringing Godzilla to life on the small screen. But first, I need to take one quick break, and then I'll be back with Gary Oldman and Jack Loudon. I, I don't normally do these kind of speeches, but this feels like a big moment. I know it's not easy being banished from MI5 to my department, but that's on you. Only screw-ups get sent to Slough House, and I've got to be honest, working with you has been the lowest point in a disappointing career. Right. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Slow Horses is based on Mick Herron's darkly funny series of spy novels. The title refers to a dysfunctional team of British intelligence agents. In season three of the Apple TV Plus show, a whistleblower is about to expose some of MI5's dirty secrets. All right, make this quick. I've got underlings to bully. I'm busy. No one in Slough House is busy. Come on, get on with it. A team from MI5 has gone rogue. And the standish has been taken. What's the plan? I need a team of good agents. But I've just had the slow horses. Hey, the traitors we're looking for. Ex-military. There will be a reckoning. Go, go! You can wipe your slate clean. Okay. There's another game being played that will probably leave me worse off. I just can't see what this one is yet. Overseeing this band of misfits is Gary Oldman's Jackson Lamb. And Jack Loudon plays River Cartwright, one of the slow horses. I began my interview by asking the actors to describe where their characters were at in the third season. Oldman joked that Lamb is a character that doesn't really change. Lamb is just... He's flatlined. (laughs) He's, he's just on his frequency. He doesn't actually, I mean, he reacts to the different scenarios that are presented. But there isn't, you know, the die is set. Lamb is, is um, I'm not knocking on the door of the scriptwriter saying, I need some more character development. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm set. So Lamb is... He hasn't changed very much, and he isn't, and he isn't going to change. I thought, Jack, actually earlier, you had an analogy, which I thought was 
rather good. Yeah, I can't remember it. About wearing a, a jacket. Oh, yeah. D- yeah, it's the characters. I, I think um, I, I was saying that I think uh, the actors are, are you can feel us, particularly when we came back and did this third one, is that we put the characters on and they feel like a jacket that's just sort of gradually getting more and more comfy. And I think Gary's right is that with Jackson Lamb, you know, I think that's always been the case. He's the most comfortable person in every room. Like he literally, he, he really is the most comfortable. There, there doesn't seem a situation where he seems on the back foot or anxious. I, I love imagining that Jackson Lamb has dealt with a lot of anxiety or anxiety inducing situations in his life and that he's just sort of decided to sort of not care anymore. And it makes him operate a lot better than the rest of us who are tr- still trying, still think there's promise. The, the the dangling of the carrot of promise is still in front of all of us. And he's, it's nowhere, the, the, the carrot's mild, he, he didn't care. Like he's eaten them all. You know what I mean? He doesn't care anymore. That's what's quite wonderful. And that's what makes, in, in, in not, not in a negative way either, but whenever you're in a scene with Lamb, you kind of know that it's always going to end in a certain way, which is, is, is a sort of roundabout way of going, well, you figure it out, because I really couldn't care less. <laughs> well, if Lamb's character hasn't changed, do you feel that Cartwright's relationship to him or that their relationship with each other has evolved or changed in any way? I think it definitely has. I think, um, and that, that, that's one of the major reasons that I can't, I can't wait to make more of it, is because... I think he is begrudgingly realising and beginning to realise that he is quite a brilliant man, Lamb. Show me that picture you got Stanish with a gun to her head. Uh, right. There's been a bit of a development. Spider works for Chieftain. Thank you. No problem. Yeah, well, they're not going to let Stanish go, so I'm going to have to get on myself, Fia. Put that on, um, on your laptop. Blow it up. Make it bigger. Think. Was there, was there any background noise when they rang? No, nothing. But did you hear what she just said? Spider was in on it. The Tiger team. Yeah, what was the message? The message was, you know, don't tell anyone, be at the Barbican Bridge or Catherine Standish dies. And Spider was there, yeah, he was yeah, in yeah, on yeah. it. Forget about Spider. Like my own personal admiration for people that that have hit a stage where they sort of really don't care, they don't sweat the small stuff. And, you know, that whole line where people say, you know, what other people think of you is none of your business. You know, Lamb's got that tattooed on his chest. There's a lot that someone like River who really cares what people think of him. He really cares. He is an egomaniac, insecure nutter in many ways. And I think he's beginning to learn you know, he really is beginning to learn from Lamb. Not about espionage, but just how to be a man, <laughs> I think. Yeah, there's something to be said. You're not so earnest, uh, you know, as you get older. Lamb has had a career and has quite rightly experienced the sharp end of it. And is, is just older, wiser, cynical sadly but that's the life that they're in and that's the world that 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 they inhabit but you do i feel that as a just as gary you know i would sweat the small stuff when i was younger 
and with age you uh, you, you mellow in that respect. I still want the work to be good. I still I still care, but I I don't have the same fire in the belly that I necessarily had when I was, you know, 27, 25, you know, um, at, the, at the beginning of a career. I don't know, maybe I subconsciously use it as in, in, in my makeup, my portrayal of Lamb. You know, years ago, I was in a couple of movies called uh, Batman, and they did okay, they were all right. You know, a few people saw them. And um, I was travelling constantly back and forth from London to L.A. We shot the first one almost entirely in London. And I was going back and forth, back and forth. And I was exhausted. And I was in a continual state of jet lag. And Nolan just said, use it, you know that sort of despair of James Gordon with as much as he tries, is he ever really going to clean up the city? And he just said, well, sort of use it, you know, that you have this just exhaustion from it all. And I think we do sometimes subconsciously use, use that. It influences... Obviously, it influences the, uh, the, 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 the work. There are eight books, currently at least, <laughs> in the Slow Horses series. As actors, do you want to know where your characters end up? Have you read through all the books, or are you kind of uh, discovering these characters as the seasons go along? I, I read up to. I, yeah. There, there's clues in the books. There. But um, I, I, I don't, I, ha- I haven't read the whole series yet, no. I, exactly the same, I'm, I'm reading them as I go. Yeah, there's something quite exciting about it. Kind of scary as well. <laughs> but it's, uh, yeah, I'm doing the same. And how do you think this season compares to the previous two, just in terms of tone and kind of where Mick Heron is taking the story? And like with the addition of Sean Donovan's character. I, well, Jack was saying earlier that I don't know how much we can give away for spoilers, but this one involves one of our own. And, and also there's, there's a whistleblower, essentially, who's going to expose some wrongdoing inside MI5, which potentially could harm not only MI5, but us the, at the Slough House. you reached the Aldersgate office, please leave a message. Uh, it's me, it's Cartwright. Look, Lamb said you might still be there. If you are, Louisa and I are down at the facility. Um, but Nick Duffy's turned up with a ton of chieftain men and guns. It's just a complete... Oh, and they've cut the CCTV. Um, it looks like they're going to come in... Gone. They've cut the phone lines. Yeah, we're on our own. So there's sort of a plot, in a way, under underfoot to move us to one side. But we have someone in our own team 
that is in jeopardy. And that makes it, um, as Jack was saying earlier, that, it, that this one is more, I guess, more personal to us. He's good, isn't he, Mick? Yes. Yeah. And Jack, talk a little bit about how Cartwright's character or his relationship with his grandfather is changing in this one. Yeah, his gra- his grandfather is beginning to show signs of, of getting old, so to speak, and so uh, the responsibility of that to to Cartwright is is really coming to the fore, which is a, 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 just a magnificent thing to be able to play. It's a real gift to be sort of running around like a maniac trying to you know shooting things and not being or not being shot by things and then in the next minute sort of taking care of of, of an elderly relative basically so that that that's been wonderful and with Jonathan Price playing that role it's twice as easy of course but i think he's what he's who he's always wanted to emulate and to see him begin Show show rough signs in this season of 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 disintegrating, so to speak, for want of a better word, um, which is a painful thing for anybody, and you know a man that he's held up as his hero, and can feel it sort of slipping away through his fingers is quite is quite sad. So that's that's the beginning of of something there in this season of something that I don't know could 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 end up getting worse or not. I don't know, but um, yeah, that's where he is. And Gary, you've played spies in other movies, especially some John le Carré stories. How does the world that Mick Heron creates of espionage, how is like how is he doing something different than a writer like John le Carré or, or just like other espionage films? Well, as much as I love John le Carré, it's not as dry. It, there's a lot more humour in Mick's take on this world. But that's what he's done. He's taken a genre that we all sort of, that we all know. I mean, John Le Carre took it to a, 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 a level that was just, you know. But we're very used to Man From Uncle, James Bond, The Born Identity, Mission Impossible. You know, we've there's a slew of... These, these of, of the, the world of espionage. And Mick has sort of turned it on its head and gives you characters that are like you, that are relatable. You, you know, in season one, we have Louisa in the laundrette doing a laundry. And we have Min, who is separated from his wife and is, you know, trying to really connect, you know, make his one phone call a week to the kids. You don't, you, you would never see Money Penny in a lingerie or James Bond eating a kebab or even talking, you know, the flatulence, you know. I, James Bond doesn't fart and not that we want him to. I don't, I want my James Bond. When I pay my money, I want my James Bond to drive around in an Aston Martin. I don't want to see him sitting on the toilet. But that's, that's the thing with, that's the thing with Mick, you know what I mean? He, he, he's made them real people in a way that we can, that we can relate to. And in fact, 
we spoke to a guy that was, he, uh, I think Jack, he was in MI6. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. And, and I also spoke with Lacare when we were doing Tinker Taylor. And he was a spy. And he would talk about how incredibly boring it was with moments of adrenaline. And I remember he said to me, I said, what was the thing? He said, the thing, the most terrifying thing about being a spy was when he was in Berlin or when he, he said, it was your cover being blown. He said, the thing you always worried about at night were the footsteps on, on the stairs. And you go, they got me. He said, but it was mind-numbingly boring, you know, big moments in between. And so it isn't jets and jetpacks and Aston Martins and, you know, speedboats and all of that. It's, it's very dull at times, very dull work. And I think that that's, that's what... That's the world. That's what makes it. Um, I, I'd like to think also it's why it's it's been thus far very successful. I think people can really watch it and relate to it. Yeah. That was Gary Oldman and Jack Loudon discussing season three of Slow Horses. Yes, that's strange, strange. Like other streaming shows, Slow Horses is a compact six-episode season with tight, efficient 45-minute episodes. This season ramped up quickly, and the final three episodes will keep you on the edge of your seat. I sometimes find it hard to watch streaming shows because it's a big time commitment. But there's no padding in this series. Every episode is expertly paced and scripted, with a balance of humor, tense action, and shrewd character development. Episode 4 debuted last week, and the season finale drops on December 27th on Apple TV+. I need to take one last break, and then I'll be back with the team behind Monarch, Legacy of Monsters. To take us into this break, here's Mick Jagger with the pitch-perfect theme song for Slow Horses. You pile up the corpses, exhausted your sauces, living right under a cloud. The odds are against you, the gods have blessed you, you better get back on the rails. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Godzilla is having a kaiju-sized month. Although he's about to turn 70, he's showing no signs of retiring. Godzilla. Minus one. At the beginning of the month, he roared ferociously back into cinemas with Toho Studios' new film, Godzilla Minus One. The film is set after World War II and delivers perhaps the best Godzilla film since the original Gojira. 
Then he made his presence felt on U.S. shores with the new Apple TV Plus series, Monarch Legacy of Monsters. I don't know if this will get to you. I hope so. I can't go back in time and fix all the mistakes I made. But maybe I can leave something for the future. A legacy. As a lifelong fan of the iconic kaiju, I wanted to find out what some of the creators behind the series thought of Godzilla. I spoke with executive producer, co-creator, and co-writer Matt Fraction, co-creator and writer Chris Black, and one of the directors of the 10-part series, Matt Shackman. I began by asking what Godzilla represents to each of them in the context of the series. Matt Fraction answered first. In the context of the series, to me, Godzilla represents... Uh, the sublime Mm -hmm. and unknowable. That there's something beautiful and terrifying, awe-inspiring and fearsome about the world we live in and the forces that affect us that we can never hope to understand. And if we're lucky enough, might get to catch a glimpse glimpse of for a few seconds. And Chris? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's so much, I mean, the, the character goes back 70 years, you know, and is over the course of the decades has evolved to mean and reflect so many different things. I mean, for me, I, I think in our specific to our series, he really represents the confusion and the tension within our lead character, Kate. You know, like, is he a hero or is he a villain? Is he a destroyer or is he a protector? And she feels herself pulled between the monster that she saw destroying her city and, you know, uh, characters like Shaw who were saying, He's not who you think he is. To me, it it really encapsulates the choice that she's forced to make over the course of the season, over over which world does she want to live in. And Matt Shackman, what does he represent to you? I can't top either of those two answers. They're both great. And I agree, because for me, he's everything that cinema is, which is wonder, which is that combination of awe and terror and unknowability. And I love this notion that he's neither good nor bad. He's very hard to define. He's a hero when he's protecting you from some other villainous monster coming your way. But he's also a villain if you happen to be on that San Francisco bridge and he's coming through at the same time. And so he's a he's a part of that bigger world you can't control. And I love that he's such a great character that you can tell stories that as filmmakers, we can reflect the world we're living in right now using the prism of Godzilla and that's been happening for generations and hopefully will happen for generations to come. And what did you all feel you could do in a series that you couldn't do or maybe couldn't do the same way in the films? The the MonsterVerse films are these bigger than big spectacles. They're movies that, you know, movies are things we buy tickets for. We leave our house, we go see them with our friends and groups of people and you know, we, we share this communal experience in front of these giant screens and television is intimate. It's something you invite into your home and you you, you come back to it again and again. Um, we wanted to make a television show in this universe rather than a scaled down movie for television. I think that would have been disastrous for all of us. So we, we wanted to build a piece of serial narrative for television that lived up to the, the, the promise of the premise of, of, of the MonsterVerse and everything in it. but but really focused on humanity and, and our, our, our characters and what life is like after you find out monsters are real. And Chris, did you want to add? Yeah, no, I mean, and look, I'm, I've spent my entire career working in television and I love television. I love making it, writing it. I love watching it. 
Um, and I just think, and I love movies too, but the thing I love about television is you have so much more real estate to tell a story, you know, that, that you can slow burn a narrative. You can unravel a mystery. You can, you can take 10 hours, or if you're lucky, two seasons or three seasons or five seasons to tell a story that, that takes unexpected turns that you don't have to make sure you have wrapped up in two hours. I would, I would just add that, you know, when these guys cracked this and created this show and, and, and when they reached out to me about joining the team to direct the first two episodes, I love Godzilla. I've loved Godzilla since I was a kiddo. And I thought, great, amazing, but how do you how do, you do that on TV? And I, and I read the pilot that, that these gentlemen created and it, and I was so surprised at how beautiful a tapestry it is, that it's a multi-generational family story, that it's a puzzle that exists over a long period of time, that it's about legacy, that it's about this you know, group of grandparents, essentially, and the grandchildren, and what's happened generation by generation. And the monsters are there to influence and affect our characters and to affect our story, but it isn't about the monsters, right? It's not about being up in the air at stratosphere level with Godzilla and King Kong fighting. It's about being down on the ground and having your life changed by the fact that Godzilla and Kong are fighting up above. And that to me was beautiful, and it is exactly as Chris said, what television does best. I mean, there's nothing better in drama than to create really dangerous circumstances, pressure on your character, and what's better than a giant monster, but you want to go week to week and root for your characters and fear for them and hope for them and be disappointed in their decisions and rally with them as they come through things. And that's what television does best because I love TV too. And so and give them time to grow and change and yeah. discover. And, yeah. and even get to watch one character grow and change literally over the course of a season from young Lee Shaw to older Lee Shaw. We have a character who's in two different time periods, just like Godzilla linking them together. So it was very special. It's using the format to the best of what the format can do, the best of what TV can do, but also not scrimping on the scope and the scale and the awe of what Godzilla can bring. You're just seeing it from the ground, not from the sky. Well, since you mentioned the character of Shaw, talk a little bit about what having Kurt and Wyatt Russell playing that character brings to the series and allows you to do. Well, I mean, it was it was a, an extraordinary gift, you know. I mean, we we're blessed with that entire cast. I mean, all the yes. actors were just pitch perfect, and 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 I couldn't have been happier with the, the you know the way they brought these characters to life in in such marvelous and surprising ways. But Shaw was an important character from the beginning. That it was he was conceived in the script before the casting process began. We knew we had this character who existed in the past and in the present. We assumed we would cast two actors, a younger actor and an older actor, and we knew that that would be a challenge to find someone who could credibly be the same person. And when we began the casting process, we have a wonderful casting director named Ronna Kress who had brought, you know, the way you would do any casting. When you, you start to look at lists of who's available, who's interesting, you know, who, who might be right for this part, and then immediately... You know, the idea that Kurt and Wyatt Russell were both available, interested, had never been in a project together, were interested in doing that. They mentioned that they had been offered roles where they played father and son, but they had never been offered a role where they were playing the same character. And as soon as they were like, yeah, we think we might like to do this, I think we were like, sold, done. <laughs> that was Monarch co-creator and writer Chris Black, along with executive producer, co-creator, and co-writer Matt Fraction, and director Matt Shackman. Next, I spoke with Sean Conrad, visual effects supervisor for the series. 
and one of the people bringing Godzilla to life. This is the world we live in. Monsters are an inescapable reality. I asked if he remembered his first introduction to Godzilla. You know, I don't, I don't have a very specific memory. I have like a vague memory of watching the American translation, the American dub version in a hotel room in like probably Grand Forks of all places. But I don't, but it, you know, it was like, you know, that on in the background, you know, channel surfing and stuff like that. But I remember like, I came back to the series when in my 20s, like when um, Bong Joon-ho's The the Host came out. Uh, and it's this like really amazing family melodrama story with a monster in the background that is making their lives miserable. Um, and and so at that point, I went back to, to, to Godzilla. And, it, you know, it's such an incredible film, like the way that it does this like crazy interesting sometimes fun action movie but does it in this like really somber way where they're talking about existential fear uh, you know of nuclear annihilation and you know to do that in like a genre piece is like a really fascinating and artistic and challenging thing so you know being part of that is like it's it's, it's an amazing experience and what does Godzilla and the monsters kind of represent to you within the context of this series you know, Godzilla is like a really, it's like a really complicated thing because the way that Legendary is envisioning him, he's like a, he's a defender of the planet in a way, but he doesn't really understand humanity and he doesn't, it's not that he doesn't care, but he doesn't, he doesn't, it's sort of like the way I've been thinking about it is like, how does an elephant regard an ant? It doesn't, right? Like it just, it just walks. And so, like, it's a force of nature. It, it looks beyond us in a way. And what's interesting is giving a personality to a force of nature. It's like, what is that personality and how does that come through? And what did you want to convey through the visual effects? What did you want to convey about Godzilla and about these other monsters? Like, what was the most important thing in creating them for you? For, for me, like, the story is like a really emotional story about a family and their legacy and about their fears and traumas and their hopes. And the thing is that the monsters in all these pivotal points represent that. It, it can represent a, a fear, it can represent a hope. And so it, it, it needs to, whenever we're developing the visual effects for these things, we need that, we need to characterize the performances of these creatures to that thing that we're trying to do. You know, we have one creature that, that sort of stalks our characters through an Arctic landscape and one of the things that we wanted to do with that is make them constantly feel like they're genuinely afraid of it, make it always feel aggressive, like it was right at their back all the time. But there's always some trick about getting away from it. And Godzilla comes from a tradition of suit actors, and you're working in this state-of-the-art visual effects. Talk a little bit about, like, what do you lose moving from that to state-of-the-art, and what do you gain? Yeah, I mean... It's, it's a great question and it's a thing that I think about all the time of like, there's like a something really organic and amazing about the old suit movies and the I, I have so much respect for all the performers who are in the suits. You look back at old photos of them like suit half on having a having a cup of tea and you're like god that must have been miserable and uh, and but you know they did amazing things with it and and you know, you can get this like really cool, punchy action out of that. And then what we're really striving for is like, okay, what if there was actually a giant 300 foot tall lizard? 
you know, it would move. It, it, it's not just that it, you know, moves slowly because when it actually gets up to speed, it's moving really fast. But, you know, it, it's that it takes a little bit of speed to, to get up and then, and then it takes a lot to slow it down. And so that lets us be like, I don't want to say realistic because I don't think realism is like the be all end all of what we're shooting for here, but we can do something that's a little bit more grounded in a physical reality that, that allows us to give scale to things. And, you know, you, you, you do lose things in that process, but you also gain a, you know, um, an immersion. And finally, I spoke with executive producer Tori Tunnel. I asked her if she had a memory of the first time she was introduced to Godzilla. That's a great question. And I think that he, you know, he's one of those characters that I, I don't know that I have a first memory because I think he, it always, it's felt like he's always been with us, like Santa Claus. It's, I don't know that I remember the first time I came across Santa Claus either, but it, it, he's always, he's just that iconic character that's always been part of our world. And what did you want to do with the series that you felt was different than what could be done in a movie? Or how could you tackle kind of this universe differently? I think what was a really exciting opportunity is that the movies have done spectacle so well and they've delivered such high entertainment, but we have so much time. And so we were able to really go deep on characters and and really um, have a juicy family drama at the heart of it that uh, we get to really unpack over 10 hours of television. And I think that that's surprising in a really robust genre um, spectacle show. Well, you mentioned family and generations here. So talk a little bit about the casting of Kurt and Wyatt Russell and how that kind of impacted the series. We, I mean, Kurt Russell is Lee Shaw. Um, He was sort of, you know, he was always meant to play it. Chris Black had always, our co-creator had always seen him as that role. And our amazing casting director, Rana Kress, um, suggested Wyatt to play his younger self. And it was so obvious. And... Kurt and Wyatt had so much fun developing this character. They spent a lot of time off screen working with each other to make sure that they were calibrating that character in a way that Kurt was sort of coming down to Wyatt and Wyatt was coming up to Kurt. Sometimes the fight picks you, sir. What's the fight even about? I guess I just can't abide bullies, sir. Your father threw a few punches in his day. Some of them at me. What do you think he'd make of you now? I don't know, sir. Maybe we could sober him up and ask him. And so it felt really seamless. And it's so exciting because there's, you know, there's so many propositions of do you de-age your character to go back to the past? Do you do you recast? And you have magic in a bottle where um, with the idea of why it is Kurt. He, you know, you just see him and he's such a young Kurt, but he is also um, his own person. And I think that that's also who we are when we look back in time. You know, we were different people 30 years ago. And so you get to have that different complexion about just what it means to uh, live across timelines. And talk a little bit about Godzilla in terms of how do you see him as a character or as a force of nature? Like, what is his role in the series? I think Godzilla has always been such a fascinating character because, as you say, he is a force of nature. And I think that for people that aren't really familiar with the IP, they assume that he's a villain. But he's so much more complex than that. He's someone that is, you know, the protector of us because he keeps uh, other titans at bay. If you want to save millions of lives, we can use some help. I 
joke that you wouldn't want him in your backyard. He's very destructive. No one, no one denies that. But he's someone that's always sort of throughout the course of time has represented nuclear power. Or when we were started to develop this, we talked about him as a represent, representation of climate change and then COVID. But he's always been representative of some sort of human challenge that has felt like an existential threat. And, and I've always admired that about Godzilla. And talk a little bit about the effects work in this and creating these monsters and kind of that world. We have an amazing VFX supervisor, Sean Conrad, who also had worked on the Gareth Edwards 2014 Godzilla, um, which was a huge leg up for us. And I think that we also have the benefit of the fact that it's 2023 and technology is on our side. So I think that, you know, when we looked at the past, sometimes we thought of as TV as having um, subpar VFX. But we're in a world right now where it feels as, as dynamic as anything you've seen in the features. And, and it really is such an advantage because we love our grounded show and it feels like monsters are actually living among us. This world, it's not ours. Believe me. It's so much more vast than we could possibly imagine. These monsters and Monarch have taken everything from me. No more. Apple TV Plus show Monarch Legacy of Monsters just passed its midway point and the season finale drops on January 12th. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with a friend because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. Till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.